if you're wondering what I'm doing right now, it's making sure pages are in order because I'm that um, much of an anxious presence. Um, I actually told somebody backstage, she was like, are you ready? And I was like, I mean, if you wanted to go shopping and get a glass of wine, I could just leave. And um, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I was at a thing recently, so I'm an Episcopal priest. My name is Sarah Condon, Episcopal priest. Um, I serve in Houston, Texas. Um, what, what? Houston. Uh, Bayou City Love. Um, I, uh, yeah, so, oh, I'm the new chaplain for Rice University. I have not started that job yet, but that is, yes, yes. So, um, and I'm nervous about that very nervous, so please pray for me. I was at a thing recently, a um, bunch of Episcopal priests were there. It was sort of this um, group project we're working on about preaching. And this, um, this person said that when she's getting ready to preach a sermon, she takes a really long silence, like a really long silence. And that's actually pretty common in my denomination. Um, <laughs> Because we just assume, you know, you know, like maybe you're praying on your own. We don't want to force it on you. So we're going to give you some silence to hash it out for yourself before we say something. And I, and I tried to relate. I said, look, you know, I went to public school in Mississippi. And before you were going to fight a girl, you know, because you knew it the day before, <laughs> you'd take off your jewelry once you got to school because you didn't want her to grab it. I know. Somebody knows. You didn't want her to grab it. Um, and I said, sometimes when I get in the pulpit, if I know it's going to be a really hard sermon, like we're about to do a thing, I'm, I take off my jewelry. <laughs> and it was like, what? <laughs> but then I said, the thing I always do is I say this prayer. And it's a prayer from Dr. Steve Brown, who spoke to us last night. Um, a prayer I heard uh, from a friend who used this prayer at a Mockingbird conference in Houston. Yeah. Um, and I told them that I always pray this prayer. And I have to tell you that one of them said to me, one of these Episcopal priests said to me, you say that out loud? I said, yeah. And then he goes, every time? I was like, yeah, yeah, every time. Because it's good for me to be reminded before I talk to you where I come from. And it's good for you to know, right, that I'm not standing in front of you as this perfect authority, that I stand in front of you as someone fallen and redeemed. So I want us to open with the prayer I usually give. Heavenly Father, we ask in this time that we are with you, um, this time that you have given us, Lord God, that we would come to know you as little children with all of the, the challenges and the complexities that that calls out in us. And Lord God, we pray for the one who teaches, for you know her sins are many. And we pray that we would see Jesus. All these things we pray in your most precious name. Amen. So today I want to talk about um, childhood with you. Because um, when I think about the future of grace, I actually think about children, but when I think about children, I think about the past. Um, so the first time I spoke in Tyler, I actually talked about parenting. 
But I want to be really clear, this is not a talk about parenting. It may sort of invoke some guilt in you, but it's not a talk about parenting. It's a talk about us as children. And I want to talk to you about why I think Jesus had a special preference for children, um, which is crazy because children are horribly needy people. So I want to talk about one of the most embarrassing stories from my childhood. Um, Don't worry, it's not when I started my period, but it's close, so (laughs) you're here now. So this is me in third grade, right? Yeah, did you have it? Those were killer glasses. They were hot in the 90s. Um, So I was somewhere around nine, right? At this age, you've realized that adults cry, right? And also that you don't have any money. I think that's a thing in third grade, you realize. Um, You're old enough to be aware of a terrifying major world event, but you're not old enough to know that they happen all the time, which is oddly comforting in adulthood. You know, something horrible happens, you're like, well, I mean, something horrible happened last week. But when you're in third grade, it all feels heavy, right? Depending on how many hormones were in your chicken or your milk growing up, you might have started to develop early. Um, I grew up in Mississippi in the 1990s, so we basically had, like, we just ate puberty-inducing hormones with, like, fried okra. Like, that was dinner. Um, So I started to get boobs early. Obviously, it stopped pretty quickly. I think we can acknowledge that out loud. I'm okay with that, right? So there I am, I'm sitting in Miss Livingston's third grade classroom, and a boy, and I got his permission, named Clint Hickman, turns to me and he says, just like this, oh my God, Sarah, you need a bra. (laughs) Clint Hickman and I are still friends, and we would later spend four years at Ole Miss drinking pink wine in the dorms and watching Will and Grace. So I would tell you he has always been himself. But these words rang out like like a court ruling for all of the land to hear. I was mortified and furious. There was no way I needed a bra. Whatever was happening was going to pass. I had told myself that. Uh, So I got off the bus that day, and I went, like, galloping into my house, and I said to my parents, and I remember they were both sitting there. They're self-employed. They were always home. They're both sitting there. And I was like, Clint Hickman said I needed a bra. And retrospectively, the fact that my parents did not laugh is a miracle, right? But my mother, my mother just very quietly, she goes, he's right, Sarah, you do need a bra. Um, I tell this story because it's one of those moments when the world began to look different. Do you remember the moment that adulthood began its awful clanging noise? Do you remember the moment when you realized that things would be impossible, that things would be very hard? The moment when when it occurred to you that everything was going to have consequences, when it felt like love was going to have to be earned and that grace seemed untrue. I don't mean in some big grand way. I mean in the way that children remember things, right, in the small things that happen. 
Um, maybe if you grew up in the church, it was the first time like a really bad Sunday school teacher said something stupid, like you have to be good because God is watching, right? Or um, that moment that you realize, and maybe this is just personal to my own story, um, that you could not continue to eat Butterfinger bars and drink Sunkiss and look like Jennifer Love Hewitt, <laughs> which is who everyone wanted to look like in 1994. Um, I remember very clearly the moment when I realized that if I did not exclude other people socially, that I would be excluded. That was kindergarten. Um, Children are not born sinless, but we do rush them into the dark weight of shame and sin and the law very early, as early as we possibly can. We begin to tip children's minds into the direction that God might not love them as much as they thought he did, or that God's love is somehow contingent on what they're thinking or what they're doing, we begin to give children our own religious neuroses. I sometimes think we look at children and we're angry with them that they don't have it yet. And that's why we give them theirs, you know. But like I said, this is not a talk about parenting. I know there's like parents in the room right now who are like, oh my God. Uh, It is a talk about us as adults who used to be children. So I just want to read this passage. People People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Oftentimes, when we think about getting ourselves together spiritually, the last thing we think about is this passage from Luke. When we feel like we aren't close enough to God... We convince ourselves it's because we haven't had enough quiet time with the Lord, right? Or we chastise ourselves for time management. Or we might listen to what the world says about how we don't practice good enough self-care, right? (laughs) Everybody needs to have self-care. Self-care is very important. If you buy a women's magazine, it's all about self-care, right? Treat yourself, relax more, whatever that means. That's like the worst thing to say to someone. Oh my gosh, don't say that, right? Um, But we think that somehow this will make us better versions of ourselves, and therefore maybe we'll be more easily connected to Jesus. I worry about me thinking that my own self-care will get me closer to Jesus because I've realized that many of the things I do in the name of self-care are the same things that women on The Real Housewives of Atlanta do, right? (laughs) So this is a deep cut, but Kim has had a spa day at her house, if you're not familiar with the show, and she's doing this procedure where she, like, is laying there with just underwear on and on her stomach, and they're removing cellulite. They're, like, sucking it off of her body, and she's eating pizza. (laughs) And I just feel like this personifies American self-care like nothing else. It's just, like, the best image. But when we want to get it together spiritually, the last thing on our minds are these small children, right, going to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. When we want 
to get closer with God, we try to think of like the best version of ourselves. We forget that God isn't interested in the best version of us, right? Because in the sight of God, all of the versions of all of ourselves are all the same, and he loves our neurotic asses anyway, right? I'm fascinated by this passage from Luke also because it's, it's so wildly different, right? Because children clearly do not have it together. If you spent time with them, you know this, right? <laughs> children are ridiculous creatures. They ask stupid questions, right? Like, can trees pee? That was like the first question my son asked. I was like, what? Uh, or a favorite at our house is, why did we have to have another baby? And I'm like, she's four now, so get on board, right? Or when she sees me change clothes, she gasps every time and is like, what happened to your belly button? And I'm like, you did, so... Um, children are unreasonable creatures driven by their need for food and hugs. This is what drives children, right? And that's who we all are at base level, which is why it's worth talking about them. And I believe it is why Jesus so clearly loved them. Okay. I want to show you guys a clip from a show that I love. It's actually a show called Love. Have you guys seen this show? It's wonderful. It's so good. It's so good. Um, so it's the story of a guy named Gus and a woman named Mickey and what it looks like when they fall in love. And I could go into the details about how dysfunctional they are, about how she's an addict and he's a perfectionist, but I don't want to do that too much because they're dysfunctional just like we're dysfunctional, and I want us to see ourselves in them. Life has broken this couple, and they have figured out that their love is not all that they thought it would be, so this pretty much describes everyone in the room. Um, so in this scene, Gus has gone completely out of his usual safety zone. He's typically a very low-key guy, right? Doesn't drink a lot, kind of self-righteous about it, doesn't really do drugs, um, but things with his girlfriend, Mickey, have taken a bad turn, and he's gone on a bit of a bender. So we meet Gus here at his wildest point. He's hanging out in a hotel room in Atlanta with David Spade and a woman. So anyway. I got a new thing boiling in the kitchen for you. You're going to want it, yeah. You're going to to do this because if you don't do it we'll feel like you're judging us yeah don't judge us Gus Remember when I was a kid, my family and I, we would go to church, and I, like, loved Jesus. That's so sweet. Jesus was, like, my best friend, and I feel like I don't even talk to Jesus anymore. When was the last time you guys talked to Jesus? Do you want to pray? Um, not right now. Yeah, I'm going to just pray real quick. You need another drink. I love how she talks, because that's how everybody talks to her, but not right now. <laughs> She's trying to be polite, you know. 
I love everything about this. I love that he like spiritually vomits all over the room. I love that when he's doing probably the most illegal thing he's ever done, he starts to talk about Jesus, right? And I love that that while he's doing it, he's jumping on the bed. He's jump when is the last time you jumped on a bed? Like I don't jump on a bed. Every time I think about doing it, which I do sometimes, I'm like I will break a bone. Like I'm not going to jump on a bed, you know. But he looks like a little kid and he's talking about how great church is. Like this is crazy. It's like, remember when grace was a sure thing? Remember when God was your friend, when you never doubted his love for you? It's like we hear in Luke, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I realize I'm putting myself in a clear camp here, but I kind of feel like Gus meets the criteria, right? It's crazy. It is not that Jesus is telling us to become children again in this passage from Luke in this, in this like physical way. He knows that's not possible, right? We cannot shrink ourselves, right? We know that candy for breakfast is, is a bad idea. Um, instead, Jesus is asking us to receive God the way that children receive him. I was also totally struck by Gus being in this bad place and remembering the consolation of church. That's very interesting because all signs of Gus's character in the show would tell me he never goes to church now, like ever at all. And here he is, he's high on cocaine, he's breaking up with his girlfriend, and he's talking about going to church and loving Jesus. In light of this longing and love that Gus points us to, I want to offer you two illustrations today. One of them is is our relationship to God, the way that we always function around God, and the other is actually God's relationship to us. And these are two different things in a lot of ways. And if we want to talk about the future of God's grace in our lives, we have to take an honest look at both of them. So first, our relationship to God. My kids are small. I watch a lot of really bad television Um, Our daughter just had the flu, and so I've seen all seasons of Princess Sophia the First two times. Yes, um, yes. Um, For a long time, it was Paw Patrol, um, which is like the worst song ever, Paw Patrol. Um, And (laughs) you guys know, it's like a little 80s, um, which is a good thing we learned last night, but... um, but it involves like, and this is the worst thing about kids' television right now. It's uh, they're all in a quest to save the environment, which is a lot to put on a six-year-old. And and Paw Patrol is like, there's like an oil spill, you know, and there's like a there's a catastrophe because it's Paw Patrol with dogs. It's just, it's from hell, um, <laughs> honestly. Um, <laughs> but there is one children's show that I love, and I could watch it all the time, every single day. Curious George. Curious George is the best, you guys. It's the best. Um, If you don't know his origin story, I'm not going to tell it to you today, but you've got to go look it up because it's an amazing story. Um, I could watch Curious George all day long because it is a story of fallen humanity over and over again. George has a horrible idea. George thinks it's a great idea. George screws everything up. And then the man in the yellow hat's like, let me just take you home. Like, that's Curious George, right? It's amazing. 
When I watch Curious George, I want to identify with the man in the yellow hat. I think a lot of us as parents probably do. Because I want to think that I'm like all patient and all knowing and all forgiving. <laughs> but then I get out of bed, right? <laughs> and I get into an argument with my four-year-old about how Honey Nut Cheerios doesn't have enough honey in it. And then I know why our Lord had to rise from the dead after three days. You know what I mean? Like all over again. But besides being totally wrong, this urge in me to be the man in the yellow hat actually negates the whole story of Curious George. Because we are all George. Small, silly, bumbling mistake factories, right? That's what we are. We need to be saved. This should sound, this should sound familiar. And of course, God is the man in the yellow hat, ever present, ever forgiving, ever full of grace and mercy, and always willing to give us a ride home. So this is a clip. The clip's a little long. I'm going to make you watch all of it. You're here now. Um, <laughs> it's, it's old school Curious George, because the interesting thing about Curious George that's really sad is that the new writing on Curious George actually arcs towards that kind of environmental, like, we're going to make kids save things. We're going to make kids ethical creature stuff. So if you want George, you got to go OG. So we're going to watch some OG George. Um, okay, this one is called George Goes to a Restaurant. Um, and I'm going to give you a glimpse of his gospel. A little later, he came out with a different tray. This one had dishes with covers on them. What was under those covers? George was curious. The waiter left the tray on a side table to see another customer. George sneaked over, jumped up, and started lifting the covers off the dishes. Mmm, the food smelled good. George tasted a lamb chop first. Then he tried some mashed potato. Finally, he found a banana. It was delicious. But now it was time for him to get back to his table. As he jumped down, another waiter came through the door and tripped over him. Dishes went flying. Food spilled all over everyone. Who did this? Shouted Mr. Anders. It was that monkey, said a lady. George got scared. Before anyone could see him, he quickly ran into the kitchen. He looked around. One of the cooks was talking to a man. They were looking at something that George couldn't see. I don't know if this looks special enough for my son, said the man. What was going on? George was curious. He jumped up on the table. There was a beautiful birthday cake. Look at that monkey, said the man. Uh, good heavens, I'll get rid of him right away, sir, said the cook. Just then, Mr. Anders ran into the kitchen. There he is, grab him, he shouted. Wait, said the man. Maybe he's just what we need. Meanwhile, the children at the birthday party were ready for dessert. Suddenly, the kitchen door opened and out came a big surprise. A birthday cake with a monkey on it. The children clapped and laughed. That's curious, George, they shouted. Hiya, George. George jumped off the cake and went over to the children. A little later, he joined his friend, the man with the yellow hat. 
soon, the birthday boy came over and gave him two big pieces of cake. Thank you, George, he said. This was the best party I ever had. Then Mr. Anders came over. I hope you'll come again soon, George, he said. You can help me with another birthday party. Finally, George and his friend waved goodbye to Mr. Anders and drove off in their little blue car. There's a couple things worth noting here. Like the loud toddler with the negligent parent at Applebee's, George has ruined everyone's dinner, right? Also worth noting, he's a monkey, so the health code violations alone in this. I'm constantly, where's his butt in this? Because first it's where's his butt with his food, and then it's his where's his butt with the cake, and I'm just like, ah. But then there's this man with a yellow hat, right? Who, against all reason, adores this monkey, this misbehaving monkey, and, and takes him home. Um, the insane thing about George that I find the most moving is that even his worst parts are used for good in these stories. When he wants to visit the hospital, he makes he gets on a gurney and runs it through, knocks patients over, makes a horrible mess of the place. But there's this one girl at the hospital who he cheers up. So, like, the takeaway is, like, George cheered somebody up. Like, that's the story. When he goes to the zoo, he gets lost. He steals bananas, eats some of them, gives a few to the monkeys, lets all of the animals out, and the takeaway is, George fed the monkeys. Like, that's, it's, like, amazing to me. There's not an episode where George visits a prison, but I feel like it would go well. I just want to say, I feel like that would be a good episode. Because he's this, like, weird receiver of grace, and then he just shares it, right? That's George. The best part of the story is that George is always forgiven. That is the whole point of the story. Um, we forget this. We forget that God uses even the worst of us for his grace, even the smallest, least seemingly significant of us. He uses for his mercy, and this is how we relate to God over and over and over and over again. We are not the man in the yellow hat. We are wreaking havoc on the world around us, and we are surprised that we get to come home to the Lord. It is astonishing and ridiculous and has nothing to do with us. Okay, this is a heavy thing. So um, I want to talk a bit more deeply about how this works. Um, about how God relates to us, but this is heavy. So I'm, I'm almost about to take my jewelry off, but I won't. <laughs> okay, this man is Janusz Korczak. I don't know if any of you know about him. Janusz was a pediatrician and, um, and an author. He's best known for this orphanage he created in, I think, the 19-teens in uh, Poland, and he was revolutionary. There's actually a beautiful book um, called Wisdom from Janusz Korczak where they've just pulled quotes. The way he thought about children as whole people was not something people were doing at that point. And the fact that he then started an orphanage and treated the forgotten children in this respectful way is just incredible. Um, kids in Janusz's... Um, 
uh, orphanage had a newspaper that they wrote articles in, and they had their own system of government where they'd elect, like, leaders. Um, I, have a, I have a household with two children, and there's no freaking way I would let them elect someone to run things, you know? So it's, like, amazing to me this guy did this. And even for that, even for that, history would have remembered him. When Korchak was notified that the Nazis would be moving the orphanage to the Warsaw Ghetto, he accompanied the children. He was given numerous opportunities to leave, numerous, but he refused them all. He wanted the children's lives to feel as normal as they possibly could in the Warsaw Ghetto, which if you don't know much about that, was a place where I mean, Jewish people died long before they got to the concentration camps. People were starving. People were sad. It was an awful place to be. And in the Warsaw Ghetto, he had the children put on small theater productions. And they would play together there. They'd play games in the filth and in the desolation of their living conditions. And just that would have been enough. When the Nazis came to take all of the children, which when, when Janus got to the Warsaw Ghetto, he had 100 children, but by the time they had been there for some time, he had 200 children because children had been brought there without parents or their parents had died. He had 200 children in his care. And when the Nazis came to take all 200 of these little boys and girls to an extermination camp, Kortok was offered the chance to leave, but he would not send those children alone to die. In fact, he lied to the children about where they were going, which is maybe my favorite part, because I feel like our righteousness is this divine lie that God tells us about ourselves, right? It's this beautiful thing. Eyewitness accounts tell us that Korchak was readying the children for the journey to their death, and he actually told them that they were going out into the country, like on holiday, to get some fresh air. He said, this will be a wonderful thing. And he said, I want you to dress in your best clothes. I want you to look your best for this. At this point, it becomes difficult for me to like not head like into the parable of the wedding banquet, but I won't, but I want you to know that that's there. There's so much here, right? And then Korchak, holding the hands of the smallest children, mere toddlers, boarded the train with them to die. And people stood there and they watched, watched this happen. One eyewitness in the Warsaw Ghetto observed the group and some years later said this, Janusz Korchak was marching his head bent forward, holding the hand of a child, without a hat, a leather belt around his waist, and wearing high boots. A few nurses, women who were also in this with him, a few nurses were followed by 200 children dressed in clean and meticulously cared for clothes as they were being carried to the altar. In the midst of death and destruction, in the midst of a terrifying world event that these children were experiencing firsthand, there was compassion and there was comfort. But more than that, there was self-sacrifice. And this is how God relates to us. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
the Lord holds our small hands and accompanies us out into the death and the destruction that is so often a part of our lives. And knowing this, knowing that thing, makes everything different. I'm convinced of that. When Matt McGill asked me to speak at this conference, he mentioned some of Paul Zoll's teachings. And he said, you know, he's talking about Paul comments that there's all this stuff that tells us that we can change our future, but we can't change our past, which is such a stupid and damning thing to tell people. Um, because, Because we don't have any control over our future. And our past... Our past actually can look different. Our past, our past is not settled. Because we, when we see our, our past in the light of the cross, everything actually changes. In some ways, our past changes, right? Because in light of the cross, nothing is settled in lostness. In light of the cross, our past can become blown wide open. We find a much smaller version of ourselves lurking inside. We find a version of ourselves that jumps on the bed and talks about Jesus. We realize that we are not burdened with our own salvation, right? Is this not crazy, these two pictures against each other? It's just crazy to me. We have let the animals out of the zoo, right? like George, or we've been through a terrible divorce, or our adult children don't speak to us, or we don't speak to our adult children, or, or earlier things that have haunted us in our lives. Terrible things in childhood, loss, right? Violation, emptiness. And the grace of God peels away layer after layer of this woundedness and this hurt that which we have done to others and that which has been done to us, as the confession of my church says. And these things begin to look different. Things that seemed 100% impossible to be redeemed are suddenly the redemptive thing in your life, right? And in this lonely, aching world with a future that seems much scarier than its present, we learn that we are not marching to our deaths alone, Because Jesus, in all of his mercy, finds the smallest one among us. And if you are in this room, you are the smallest one, right? He holds our hands and he dies so that death would lose its sting. So that sin would no longer haunt us. So that no matter what our future looks like, our past has a new story. The story of a God who called the smallest and the least significant to sit in his lap. The only thing those children in the Gospel of Luke offered to Jesus was their need of him. That's all they had. But it turns out that's all they ever needed anyway. The best part about children is that they are horribly, horribly needy people. And it is also the best part about us. Amen.